if you have your Bibles, if you would open with me now to the book of Romans, chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, with a message entitled, The Future of the Nation of Israel. Romans chapter 11. And beginning in verse 1. I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Father, we pray now that you would speak to us from your word. Lord, we know that you have a future and a hope for us and you have a future and a hope for the nation of Israel. In Jesus' name, amen. In Romans chapter 9, we began a new section within this letter that focused on and answered questions concerning the nation of Israel. It began in chapter 9 with their election. According to his foreknowledge and sovereign plan, God selected the nation of Israel to be his chosen people. They had a unique relationship with God, unlike any other nation. He also gave to them his word. In addition, he made several promises to them and gave them several covenants. Most importantly, from the nation of Israel came the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. Then in chapter 10, we saw that even though they had been given these undeserved and divine privileges, they took them for granted. They began to lean upon their heritage, upon their traditions, their religious practices as a means of righteousness and salvation. And when their Messiah came, many of the Jews rejected him and crucified him. They attempted to approach God on the basis of their own righteousness rather than faith in the finished work of Christ upon the cross. From a merely human perspective, one might assume that the Lord was done with Israel or that divine long-suffering had finally run out and they were to be cast aside, that their future looked abysmal at best, and the covenantal promises that were made to Israel were now invalidated. But that brings us to the 11th chapter. As the Apostle Paul sees a much brighter future for the nation, and he posed a question that was on the minds of his readers in verse 1, and then he answers the question by providing powerful testimonies to prove his point. First, the question in verse 1. I say then, has God cast away his people? And then the answer, certainly not. To rephrase the question, we would say, is God done with Israel? Or to state it another way, 
have all the blessings that were promised to Israel now been passed on to the church? Have they been replaced? And once again, Paul answers his question by using the most emphatic, dogmatic response in the Greek language in two words, certainly not. It doesn't get any stronger than that. In Psalm 94, verse 14, it says, The Lord will not abandon his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance. In Psalm 106, verse 44 through 45, And for their sake he remembered his covenant, and he relented according to the multitude of his mercies. He also made them to be pitied by all those who took them away captive. And then in Psalm 89, verse 31, the Lord declares, If they break my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will visit their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Nevertheless, my loving kindness I will not utterly take away from him, nor allow my faithfulness to fail. My covenant I will not break nor alter the word that has gone out from my lips. God makes it very clear throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament that there is a future for the nation of Israel. To prove his point, Paul uses several powerful testimonies. The first testimony is his own testimony. He says in verse 1, I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul uses his own personal testimony as a witness to God's faithfulness to the nation. He begins by saying, if you think for some reason that God is done with the nation of Israel, just look at my life. Paul's conversion served as a powerful testimony that God can bring his plans to pass. In his other epistles, Paul writes about his testimony before he came to Christ. He writes about what he was like before he was saved. In writing to the church in Galatia, in chapter 1, he said this, You've heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. The Bible tells us in the book of Acts that Paul, who was formerly Saul of Tarsus, was breathing in and breathing out threats against the church, putting people in prison, putting people to death for their faith in Christ. In writing to Timothy in his first epistle, in chapter one, he said, although I was formally, past tense, a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. This is what I used to be like, Paul is saying. But then in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16, he then talks about God's purpose in all of this. He says, however, for this reason, I obtain mercy, that in me first, Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Paul's testimony was powerful, and when he shared his testimony, it was as if he felt that his own personal conversion was a foreshadowing of others in the nation of Israel who would come to faith just as he did. It was as if he was saying, if God can save someone like me, 
then he can save anyone. Can I encourage you this morning, folks? Never underestimate the power of your personal testimony of what Jesus has done in your life. Don't be ashamed. Don't be afraid to share that. There, people may deny many things that you say. They may try to refute the arguments that you present. But the fact is, you are a living epistle known and read by all men. Your very life speaks volumes. You may be the only Bible that somebody ever reads. They can't argue with a changed life, especially if they knew you before and they knew you now. They may be able to deny this or deny that, but they can't deny the change that the Spirit of God has made within your life, thus your testimony is powerful. Just tell people what Jesus has done. You remember when the demoniac was delivered and put in his right mind? Jesus sent him out and he went out everywhere telling everyone the good things that the Lord had done for him. That's it. Just telling people what Jesus has done for you, Paul's testimony was powerful. That's the first witness, that God's not done with Israel. Look at Paul's testimony. Another witness that Paul brings to light, and that is this, Israel's history. We have Paul's testimony, but secondly, he points to Israel's history. Look at verse two. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or don't you know what the scripture says of Elijah? how he pleads with God against Israel saying, Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've torn down your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. As he had done repeatedly throughout this epistle, Paul reaches back to Old Testament scripture to illustrate and prove New Testament truth. He alludes to 1 Kings chapter 19 during the days of Elijah. In 1 Kings, we find at this point, this was perhaps the lowest time in the history of the nation of Israel. Wicked King Ahab and his evil wife Jezebel were ruling in Israel. Together, they led the nation into the worst forms of idolatry in the worship of the false god, Baal. Elijah was then called upon by the Lord to stand before the king and declare that it would not rain for the next three years, except at his word. After three years, Elijah, having been in hiding, was called upon again, this time to confront the false prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And the false prophets were to build an altar to their false god, Baal, and Elijah would repair the altar built for God. And they would prepare their sacrifices, and they would both pray. And the God that answered by fire from heaven would be the one true God that the nation would serve. After hours of attempting to summon a God that did not exist, the prophets of Baal gave up. Elijah then prayed and God answered by fire. And at that moment, the people declared the Lord, he is God. They returned back to him. And then Elijah put to death the prophets of Baal 
And then he prayed and the drought ended. Following this temporary revival and spiritual victory, Jezebel wrote a letter to Elijah. And in that letter, she threatened to put him to death before the day was done. And this powerful prophet was suddenly overcome with fear and he ran for his life and he hid within a cave. And then the Lord met him there in that cave and he said, Elijah, what are you doing here? And Elijah's response is what Paul quotes here. I alone am left. It's just me. There's nobody else to stand for you. I'm by myself. No one else is with me. And the Lord in that moment corrected his melancholy messenger. And he said to him, I have 7,000 men who haven't bowed the knee. In other words, God said to Elijah, Elijah, you're not the only one. I have a remnant of people who have remained faithful to me. Folks, God always has a remnant. Always. They may be the minority, but God has a remnant. Even in the times when Israel was as idolatrous as they could be, that you would think God would cut them off and judge them immediately. As you look back at their history, Paul points out, even then, God had a remnant. And if God had a remnant back then, he's saying to those reading this epistle, he still has a remnant today. He still has a remnant. He's not done, in other words, with the nation of Israel. So you have Paul's testimony, which is powerful. You have Israel's history, which is insightful. It gives evidence to the fact that God's not done with him. But then there's another testimony. And this time, he points to God's grace and mercy. Look at verse five. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Verse six, and if by grace, then it's no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. Untangle that, if you will. <laughs> Sounds like a riddle. But let me explain. This remnant that Paul referred to related to God, not on the basis of trying to keep the law to be made righteous or to earn salvation, they related to God the same way that the Gentiles did, the same way that you and I relate to him, on the basis of his grace. Folks, when it comes to righteousness, a right standing with God, when it comes to salvation, it is all of God's grace. It is not of your works or mine. We are saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. I don't come to God on the basis of my work. I come to God on the basis of Christ's work on my behalf. It is a work of grace, something I could not earn or deserve. I can only receive grace, God's riches at Christ's expense made available to you and to me. Grace, that's how they related to him. This remnant, it's a work of grace. When it comes to righteousness, when it comes to salvation, grace and works are mutually exclusive. Now, having said that, the Bible does say that faith 
without works is dead, James tells us. What did he mean by that? Is he contradicting Paul? No. I do not perform good works to be saved. I engage in good works because I am saved. It is a natural byproduct of someone who has been born again to bear fruit. And some of that fruit is good works for the glory of God. I don't do it to earn salvation. I have salvation. And that's why I involve myself with it. It's often the evidence of a genuine conversion. Your faith is able to be seen and discerned by the way that you live. But when it comes to salvation, it is a work of God's grace. And even serving the Lord, that also is a work of God's grace in and through us. So the first question, is the Lord done with Israel? The response, certainly not. Look at Paul's testimony Look at Israel's history and don't forget God's grace and God's mercy. Not getting what you deserve and getting what you don't deserve. Mercy and grace, I'm thankful for both. But then Paul presents another question that was on the minds of his readers. Found in verse 7 in two words. It says, what then? What then? If God isn't finished with the nation of Israel... And there is a remnant of Jewish believers who have trusted in Christ as their Savior, as their Messiah. What then happened to the rest who did not believe? What's going to happen to them? It's a fair question. And Paul answers that question. First of all, he says some of those who did not believe, who rejected the gospel, they became calloused in their hearts. Look at what it says in verse 7. Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. It's a word for callous. Some of your translations may say hardened. Same word, calloused. Just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, ears that they should not hear, to this very day. Metaphorically, it's a picture of a heart becoming dull. It's actually the same word that is used in speaking about the reaction of the unbelieving Pharisees in Mark's gospel, the third chapter, after Jesus healed a man in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. They were unbelieving. Even though the evidence was literally in front of their eyes, they saw the man healed right in front of them, and rather than believe it, they chose not to believe it, not because they didn't see it or the evidence wasn't clear. They just said, we, we don't believe it. They turned from it. Their hearts became dull. Even though all of the facts were there, all of the evidence was in front of them, they chose not to believe. It's also a word that Paul uses in writing to the Ephesians to describe unconverted Gentiles. He said they walk in the vanity of their own mind. They have their understanding darkened. They're alienated from the life of God because of the blindness, there's the word, blindness of their heart. They're callous. They won't receive it. You know, when I was a teenager, many years ago, my father gave me my first guitar. And it, it was electric. It had to be. I mean, you have to have, I just wanted to rock, you know. And so, you know, I, I didn't know any chords, but it came with a chord book. And so, you know, you try to figure out how chords, they show you where to put your fingers. And when you begin to place your fingers on those strings that are metal, 
it hurts. It hurts. But you power through. And over time, calluses develop on your fingers to where you don't feel it anymore. Just time and, you know, keep, keep going, keep doing what you've been doing. Eventually, you get calluses on your finger and you don't feel it any longer. This is what happened to those in Israel who did not respond to the love and to the appeal of God. They heard it, they heard it, they kept rejecting it, kept rejecting it, and over time, they just became callous. They didn't feel it anymore. They didn't respond to it. They wouldn't receive it. It had no impact on them any longer. And that's the same thing that happens to people today. God makes his appeal of his unconditional love in the gospel presentation. The gospel can be preached time and time again. But if a person goes on in his or her own way long enough, rejecting it, you know what happens? They just become callous to it. I've heard that before. I've heard it lots of times. I don't believe it. If you continue in sin long enough, you no longer will feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit either. You no longer sense the pain of what you're doing or that you're causing other people and you're not concerned about where you're headed and the destination of where that broad road is ultimately gonna lead you. It's not leading you to God. It's leading you farther away from him to eternal separation from him. In addition to being calloused, those who rejected the gospel became unaffected by it. Paul says here, just as it is written, again, he's quoting Old Testament here, God gave them, has given them a spirit of stupor. It meant that they were unaffected by the offer of salvation, eyes that they couldn't see, ears that they couldn't hear to this very day. And then he quotes here from the Psalms and what David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened that they don't see and bow their backs always, bow down their backs always. Paul declares this hardening, this callousness begins to grow to a point where they are just, not just callous, but not affected. They don't care. And eventually, if you continue in that way, you can get to the place where you are comp you're unresponsive. You're unresponsive. I don't know where the line is where a person can cross where they don't believe and God honors the decision that they've made and they won't believe. Not because the evidence isn't there, not because they didn't have opportunity, but they will not respond and God honors the decision that they make. When Paul talks about what David said from Psalm 69, he's giving us this picture of men sitting down at a table and feasting comfortably. They come to a banqueting table with a false sense of security. We have our traditions. We have our religious practices. We have Abraham's blood coursing through our veins. We are the chosen people. We don't need to live right. We don't need to trust in Christ. We're good. We're at the table. But the problem is they live with the self-satisfaction and false sense of security. They have all of the outward ceremony and no inward reality. You're at the table, but it hasn't done anything to change your life. You're trusting in the fact that you're at the table and you have this and you've done that and this is your way. One of the most tragic things to see for me as a pastor is people trusting and leaning upon things that cannot save them. Counterfeits of salvation. And the more they come to the table 
with those false concepts and feed upon them, the more deceived and blinded and callous they become and they eventually get to the place, as David says here in the Psalms, they bow down their backs always. It's a picture of slavery. They become slaves. Jesus said, whoever commits sin becomes a slave of sin. And it's cruel bondage, friend. It promises freedom, but it brings bondage. And yet Jesus is the one that can free you. The Bible says who the son sets free is free indeed. There may be some here today that you're bound in sin. How do you know if you're in bondage to sin? I'll tell you how you know. You keep going back to it. You keep going back to it and justifying it and repeating it and repeating it and repeating it. And you are stuck in a cycle of repetitive sin. And let me just pull the blinders off for a second and say this, you're in bondage. But let me also say, Jesus is a great liberator and he wants to free you today from that. And he can, he can liberate you. He can free you. Well, I've tried and I could, you need his help. You have heaven's resources and heaven has enough power and resources to free you from what you can't free yourself from. And so here they are, living in this false sense of security. But then another question comes up, a third question, and that is this. Was there being set aside these calloused, unaffected individuals who rejected the gospel, now set aside, is it permanent? That's a question. Is it permanent? Is it judgment or is it discipline? That, those are two very important questions and two very different things. Is this discipline, them being set aside, or is it ultimate, final judgment? Is it permanent? Paul answers that question in verse 11. He says, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? There's the answer again, certainly not. When he says, have they stumbled um, that they should fall, the word literally means to fall away and then to apostatize. Are they beyond God's grace? Are they beyond God getting a hold of them? And here comes the final testimony, at least in this section, that Paul presents. We've had Paul's testimony. We've had Israel's history. We've had God's grace and God's mercy that he's not done with Israel. Here's one more testimony, and that is this, God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty. He's still at work. Look at what it says. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? Now, think about that. Paul is talking about the sovereign plan of God. It's so tragic. They've turned away. They, they're, they're callous. They're unresponsive. Oh no, what, what's going to happen? God says, let me just, through Paul, let me tell you what I've done. What I've done, the fact that they've been set aside, you know what's happened? Through their fall and through their failure, the door of the gospel has opened up to a completely different group of people. Well, who's that? Oh, I don't know. People sitting here, Gentiles, you and me. He came to his own, his own did not receive him, but to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. We didn't have right to that. We had no access to the covenant promises given to Abraham and his descendants, but the fact that there was those that turned away, it opened up the door for the Gentiles to be saved. That was always part of God's plan. This was no surprise to God. He was sovereignly working all of this out. We see it one moment at a time. We think, this is tragic. God sees it from beginning to end and says, this is part of my plan. I'm going to use this for good. 
The Gentiles are now going to be saved. And Paul says, think about this. If their fall and their failure brought salvation to the Gentiles, think about what's going to happen when they come back to the Lord in their fullness. I'll tell you what's going to happen. The Bible tells us the kingdom of God is going to come to the earth. Jesus in his second coming is going to come and establish his kingdom. He's going to rule and reign with a rod of iron. The Bible says the government is going to be upon his shoulders. He's going to be in charge. He's going to rule from the throne of David. And his kingdom is going to last forever. That's what's coming. So when the fullness comes and they return, when the fullness of the Gentiles has ended, when God's done with his work to the Gentiles, and now the Holy Spirit directs his attention primarily to the Jews, man, there's going to be an amazing revival among Jewish people. It's going to be awesome. God's not done. He's sovereign. Oh, they're blinded right now, many of them. Unaffected, slumbering, missing out, but not forever. God still has the power and the ability to bring them back. Their blindness, in other words, folks, it's not irreversible. God has ways. God has means to accomplish his purposes. Nothing can thwart the purpose of God, even man's failure. The door was opened up to the Gentiles. Paul goes on to describe a little bit more about the potential that they have. Look at verse 12. He says, now, if their fall is the riches for the world and their failure, there it is again, riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? Verse 13. I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are of my flesh and save some of them. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Again, Paul speaking to the Gentiles, and why? He was an apostle to the Gentiles, which, by the way, brings up a valuable point. When you think about the apostle Paul, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, I mean, these people did not mix with Gentiles whatsoever, and yet the very people that Paul despised and disdained, wanting nothing to do with, those were the people that God sent him to preach to. Don't be surprised if God sends you to people that you think, those aren't my people. Well, they're going to become your people. <laughs> God sends you to people that you wouldn't necessarily expect to go to. And so Paul has this ministry to the Gentiles. And he says to the Gentiles here, I magnify my ministry to the Gentiles. Why, why? To magnify something means to make it big, to make it large, to magnify. Paul says, I magnify my ministry to the Gentiles. Why? For this purpose, that it might bring provocation to the Jews, that it might provoke them, that they might see God's blessing upon the Gentiles and say, hey, wait a second, these guys know more about the Bible than we do. Hey, they know more about our God than we do. What is, why is there a blessing on their life? Paul says, I magnify my, oh, this over here? Oh, this is, and I'm magnifying it so they'll come over. He would go into the synagogue and he would preach to the Jews about Jesus being the Messiah. They would kick him out and then he'd go with the Gentiles and start a church here and start a church there, here a church, there a church, everywhere a Gentile church. And then, just to let them know that he was united still with the Jews, he, he actually took up a, a financial collection from the Gentile churches just to show, we, we love you, we support you, trying to bring unity, trying to bring them to this place to provoke jealousy within them. He magnified his ministry so that people, the Jews would want what it was that he had. Let me ask you something today. 
Is there anything in our lives as it relates to our relationship with Jesus Christ that makes the non-believer desire what we have? Does it provoke them to want what I want? Does it provoke them to want what I have, in other words? Anything, see, Paul said, I magnify my ministry. I magnify my relationship with Jesus. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God and the salvation to everyone. who. I magnify it. I want the world to see it. Some Christians microscope their relationship with Jesus. Is that Jesus? I don't know. I can't see it. I'm not sure. It's not magnified. It doesn't say, come, microscope the Lord together with me. Let us exalt his name. It says, magnify, make it large, make it huge. Open up about it. Some Christians are content to be microscopic. Listen, the world is all about magnifying, wanting people to see what they're doing, what they're eating, where they're going, where they're vacationing, who their friends are. It's, we, we're all about magnifying it. And sometimes it, prov- it, it, it provokes some people. Oh, man, I can't believe they ate there. So, so I hate it. Wish I was there. It, was just, it provokes something within you that isn't necessarily godly and you have to crucify the flesh. But is there anything within our lives that we're putting on blast as it relates to Jesus that the world says, I don't know what it is about your marriage. Did you guys go to counseling or what do you do? Yeah, we actually have a great and mighty, he's, he's a great counselor. He's a mighty counselor, actually. He's mighty. Who is he? Jesus he can't, you know it's Jesus that makes your marriage work the way that it does. Your wife definitely knows it's Jesus. <laughs> and they want to know, hey, what is it about your kids? Why, why are they living that way? Are you, you, what books are you having them read? Do you got them like reading the, what's the, the bestseller? We do have a bestseller. It's interesting. It's uh, the Bible. We're, we're, we're raising them on the word. And they're seeing different things, the way you live, the way you, your work ethic, how you're honest, how you're, I mean, these are, these are just things that people take note of when you say, I am a Christian. They have an expectation. They even have this, they, they think that this is what a Christian is like. And you and me, as I said, we may be the only Bible somebody ever reads, but they're going to look at us and see who Jesus is through our life as we represent him. Jesus said that the church was to be salt and to be light. Light, of course, illuminates darkness, uncovers things in the shadow so that people that can't normally see can see when the light's on. But not only are we to be light, but he also said salt. Salt makes people thirsty. I I got a, I need water. What happened? There's something, when you have salt, it makes you thirsty for water. Folks, is there anything about our lives that makes people thirst for Jesus? Do they see it? You know, one way in which the world really takes notice is when people in the church suffer, when believers go through difficulty, when believers get cancer or believers lose loved ones. The world takes notice. They watch to see if what we say we believe we actually believe. I was thinking this week, and probably you read it, most of us have, the tragedy for Toby McKeon and his family. We've been praying for them as he and his wife lost their oldest son. But I read a quote from him this week that I thought was profound. He said, 
my wife and I want the world to know. We don't follow God because we have some sort of under the table deal with him. Like we'll follow you if you bless us. We follow God because we love him. It is our honor. He is the God of the hills and the valleys and he is beautiful above all things. Who says that kind of stuff? People who will magnify the Lord in any situation to provoke the world to desire something that we have. I think about the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 16 as he and his missionary team made their way to Macedonia. And when they arrived, they were confronted by a demon-possessed girl that actually followed them around as they were seeking to minister into this, in the city and was saying, these are the servants of the Most High. She's out of her mind. She's demon-possessed. A demon-possessed promoter of your ministry. You didn't ask for her, but she's there. And at one point in Acts 16, it's rather interesting to me because it says, and I'm thankful that it's in the Bible, it says that Paul, being greatly annoyed, I just like that it says that. Sometimes in ministry, in life, you get annoyed. But through the power of the Holy Spirit, he was able to deliver this girl who was actually a slave. She would tell people's fortunes. He delivered her from this demonic spirit and her owners so angry that they could no longer make profit out of her fortune telling, turned on Paul, Silas, beat them with rods and then placed them in the lowest dungeon, the Bible says in Acts 16. And it says at midnight that Paul and Silas were praying, that they were singing hymns, and it says that the prisoners were listening. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundation of the prison was shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's chains loosed. I love that. As they were worshiping, chains fell off. Prison doors swung open wide. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep, seeing the prison doors open, supposing that the prisoners had fled, the Bible says he drew his sword and he was about to kill himself. And at that moment, Paul called with a loud voice and said, do yourself no harm, we are all here. And then he called for a light, he ran in, he fell down trembling before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said this, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your whole household. And they were converted, they were saved, they were born again. What was it that brought that Philippian jailer to fall at the feet of Paul and Silas with their backs bloodied, with their hands formerly in chains and their feet in stocks. They magnified the Lord in one of the darkest spots and he heard it and then he saw it and he wanted what they had. What do I need to do to be saved? Is there anything about our lives? Are we magnifying the Lord to such an extent that people say, I want what you have? Do you use the platform that God's given you to preach Christ or to preach you? 
He's given us opportunity. He's given us a platform. He's given us a microphone, as it were, in our life to speak, to share, to reveal. Would to God that the lost in this world would be provoked to want what you have because you have everything you need in Christ. The Bible says he has given unto us, listen to this, all things that pertain to life and godliness. That means everything. All means all. May God help us to live a life in that way, to magnify the Lord. The prisoners might be set free and turn to Christ. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning once again as we've read today that there is a future and a hope that you've prepared. Lord, not just for the nation of Israel, but for everyone who believes in you. Lord, that our future is as bright as the promises that are found in your word. God, may we take hold of those. Lord, I pray if there are any here this morning who are like Elijah, thinking that they're all alone, that they're by themselves and no one understands what they're going through. Lord, would you remind them today that you have a remnant? Lord, help us to get our eyes off of ourselves and placed upon you. Father, we pray that you would use us this week in this world, that we might magnify the Lord in our life, that people might take notice and wonder, what is it that you have? How can I be saved? And that we'd be able to share your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you stand with us this morning? We have such a wonderful week coming up. Looking forward to it. Here at the church, we have, of course, a Tuesday evening men's study. We have the Wednesday night midweek study, still looking at the work of the Holy Spirit. It's been wonderful. And then Thursday, we have our outreach to our community in the Harvest Festival, preaching the gospel, proclaiming the truth of Jesus in our community. We're going to be that light. We're going to be that city. Hope that you can join us. Be in prayer for us this week. We pray for you every week. Lift up the needs of this body. Thankful for you. If you need prayer after the service, I would encourage you, come up after the service. We'd love to pray for you for any needs that you might have. And if not, may the Lord bless you. And hey, magnify the Lord this week. Magnify him. Put it on blast, friends. <laughs> People might see Jesus and how we live and what we say and what we do. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.